Jewish women are the strongest force on earth. We take care of our families, our communities, and carry the sacred responsibility of ensuring that our traditions are carried on to the next generation. This is A Deeper Conversation, a podcast for Jewish women. We explore ways to strengthen ourselves and our connection with God and the Torah. My name is Yocheved Davidowitz. I am a wife, a mother, a teacher, a writer, a therapist, and most importantly, a Jewish woman. Welcome. Hey everybody, welcome. This is Yochaved. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You are about to hear a conversation that I had with Gila Glassberg. Gila is a registered dietitian and she is an intuitive eating specialist as well. So this is the second in my nutrition series and I'm I'm fascinated with nutrition. I always have been. Um, I'm also a certified health coach myself, although I work really more in mental health, but some of my clients really are struggling with emotional eating and it's something that I've struggled with over the years as well. So I, I don't know how anybody can't be interested in nutrition. That's the truth. Um, because we have to eat food all day. Like we're always busy with it. Hashem obviously created us in such a way so that we really have to always be thinking about what we're eating, how we're eating, how we're preparing our food, what people like. If you're a mother, you're you know always trying to manage a bunch of different palates and tastes. And it can be just a daily chore sometimes instead of a joy to prepare food for your family. Um, but... This was a great conversation, one that we sort of left hanging because at the end of the podcast, when you get to it, um, if you listen to the end, you will hear that Gila and I have a little bit of a disagreement that we didn't really get to flesh out and talk about as much as I would have liked. And there's certainly more things um, that I would like to talk to her about. So I'm planning and we're discussing it right now, hoping to have her back for part two so that we could finish out that conversation. And since we are going to do that part two, hopefully, if you have any questions for Gila, maybe, or for me and Gila within our conversation, please email me at a deeper conversation 120 at gmail.com. And hopefully, maybe we could sort of include some of your feedback on this episode to that episode that hopefully we'll record soon. I've got a bunch of great things coming up. I actually just gave a talk, and this was after I had recorded the podcast with Gila. I just gave a talk for Chizik Mission about body image. And so this episode that I had done with Gila was sort of fresh in my mind when I went to go give that talk. And so I think I might actually record an episode of me talking about some of the things that I talked about, which is really a Torah perspective on body image. Um, So I'm going to hopefully share that one with you soon. And I've got um, another Brachos episode I hope to post next week um, and some more some more in, uh, interviews that I did. So a lot of great things coming up. If you um, would like to sponsor a podcast, please email me at a deeper conversation 120 at gmail.com. That is also where you go for questions, feedbacks. Um, if you want to be in touch with me, um, you can follow me on Instagram at a deeper conversation. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, either through the sponsorship or you can go to maverickpodcasting.com, click on the link to my page. You can donate monthly, even like five dollars a month, $10 a month really helps to keep the podcast going because it does take quite a lot to put these episodes out. So if you're enjoying it, if you think you're getting value from it, you want to help support it, that would be great. Um, I really appreciate everybody who supports and who is in touch with me. And then if you are not able to help financially, but you want to support the podcast, you can go to applepodcast.com and leave a five-star rating. Um, uh, and you could write a review also that really does help the podcast. Okay. So without further ado, let's get into the episode and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I am so excited. I really am. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time. I think I told you when we spoke, I read the intuitive eating book a long time ago. It was very inspiring to me, but there were certain things that made me nervous about it, I guess. So I'm very Mm -hmm. excited to just talk to you about it and get into it more um, and hopefully let people know a little bit more about it. But before we start talking about intuitive eating, tell me about you. So your background, personal, professional, whatever you'd like to share with me and my audience about how you came to be sitting here talking to me today. Sure. Um, So thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored and I love your podcast. I'm a new listener. Um, So how did I come to be here today? So I always say this this is like my go-to story. It was in my personal statement when I was a student. Um, I'm the fourth of nine kids. Um, my mother didn't make sure that we eat quote unquote healthy. She just made sure that we ate. So we had a lot of tater tots and chicken nuggets and things like that for dinner. There wasn't really a lot of like diet talk in my home, although both my parents were on diets on and off as mm-hmm. when I was a kid, but I was actually skinny. So I never got, I never got like diet talk basically. Um, and I, I didn't really think about my weight when I was a kid, 
not much, like probably like just the usual, like here and there, like kids would talk about it, but I wasn't such a big part of my life. Um, I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and mm-hmm. um, I went away for high school. I boarded in Teaneck uh, when I was in high school, and it was like so exciting to me. I got to eat kosher pizza whenever I wanted to. I was down the block from a pizza, pizza store. I would go all the time. I'd go to the candy store. I was super excited about it. And um, I would say probably like midway through my ninth grade year, I started to notice like about my, I started paying attention to my weight. My friends were all talking about weight and dieting and how fat they were and how disgusting they were and lots of body shaming and body bashing. And I just sort of like hopped right on that bandwagon, you know, like, oh, this is like a thing I have to do like diet contests and, you know, um, just like normal mainstream high school talk, which isn't so normal, but you know, right. it is normal. Um, the diet, there was that one that was supposed to be like, if you like eat certain foods that it would all cancel each other out. I remember doing right. those kinds of things in high school. Of course we did. We, we did them all South beach and weight watchers. And I mean, keto is big now, but it wasn't then, but you know, diet right. competition, that was a big one. Oh, I have a funny story about that, but maybe I'll save it for later. Um, but um, so for me, it was like that normal dieting, let's say like ninth, 10th <laughs> grade. Um, and then it became not so normal, like to the point where I realized, I remember specifically thinking this diet's not working because um, I'm cutting out, I'm cutting out cheese or I'm cutting like, let's say fats or I'm cutting out carbs, right? But why don't I just like not eat? I remember having that thought. And I just started to try to not eat as much as I could. And mm-hmm. I, I did lose a lot of weight and I got a lot of attention for it. A lot of positive attention from my friends, from my family. And I felt on top of the world. I felt so powerful. I felt so strong. I felt like I had so much willpower. I felt, And I also felt like I had an identity, mm-hmm. um, which is a big part of eating disorders, by the way. I'll explain later. So yeah. So like... Um, also, like I had very low self-esteem. I wasn't living with my parents, so they weren't like really seeing my eating behaviors or really like the ins and outs of what was going on in my head. Um, I grew up non-Orthodox, like I was hanging out with boys. So like I was getting a lot more attention from boys. Like it was just reinforced all around me. My eating mm-hmm. behavior was reinforced. Um, and again, that identity piece, like getting so much attention for something about my body and about my willpower. And I do have a lot of willpower and tenacity. That's like my, my personality is very stubborn. So like once I want to do something, I'll do it to the nth degree. I wasn't a good student. I wasn't good at school. So this was something I was very good at. Um, to the point where everybody knew, like when I was in seminary, I was like the healthy girl. I was the girl that would only eat whole weed and go for runs. Like it was so much a part of my identity. Um, so for me, I was very lucky I didn't develop a, an eating disorder because when I was in 11th grade, I went on, I don't know if this is because, but when I was in 11th grade, I went on a trip with two good friends. We went to California for like seven days and we had a blast, but they really saw the way that I was eating and kind mm-hmm. of like called me out. And it was like, it, it was, it was like that aha moment. Like, oh, this is like really disordered. Like I'm barely eating. I can't focus. I'm shaky. I'm obsessed with food, thinking about food, making, smelling food, making other people eat food, all eating disorder behaviors. And I, I sort of was able to like snap out of it, but I was still very much in disordered eating. Like I wouldn't, I, I specifically remember going to a bagel store with friends and ordering a whole wheat bagel and the person made it wrong. And I remember my friends like, just taste it, see if it's whole wheat. I'm like, I won't taste it. Like extremely strict, but wow. like to disordered level. And um, I really continued like that. Not, not as strict, but when I went to seminary, I remember taking the breading off my schnitzel and the, like the first few weeks. And then I was like, I'm going to die. If I eat like, there's like, there's no food in Israel, you know? Um, so I, I, I would say it like kind of organically normalized, but I was, I, from 11th grade on, I knew I wanted to be a nutritionist. That was like, oh, I want to teach people about nutrition and health. And it's so, I, I don't have to be obsessed. I could learn what, what's actually healthy eating. I didn't know that that um that the real term was was a dietitian. I didn't know that it was a very science based heavy schooling. I was not a good student, like I said before, but it was just like this passion of mine, this dream of mine. Like, and I, I specifically wanted to do like eating disorders, disordered eating in the firm community because I felt like I had struggled so much, and I was still struggling really. Right. Um, and then when I came back from seminary, I was like, okay, I'm going to start my degree in nutrition, which was like extremely challenging. It's a really long degree. Mm-hmm. It's very science heavy. Um, and, but I did it, I got it and you, to get your RD, like registered dietitian, you have to um, get into an unpaid internship for a year, which is extremely competitive. 
and um thank god i got in and i was uh, like uh, over the moon i was like on a high like i couldn't believe i did it after all those years of schooling and i got married and i had a baby while i was in school and um basically like pretty much like i would say like a month or two after i started working i was like i hate this job i can't i can't do this job i'm the food police um i I also was working in nursing homes. So I figured like, okay, maybe it's like the nursing homes, but there was no other job. There's no other jobs. Like there's nursing homes and hospitals and you're basically the food police in all those places or like a glorified waiter or waitress. Mm -hmm. So like, I felt, honestly, I felt like super depressed and I felt really down. And I was like, now what? I don't want to do private practice because first of all, I have no business training. Second of all, I don't want to tell people what to eat. I know there's more to it. I knew there was more to it from my own experience. Mm -hmm. Telling people what to eat is not my job telling uh, teach like understanding the whole person and why they eat the way they eat and why they feel out of control around food and why it affects them so much that was that spoke to me but I didn't know anything about it um and honestly like another tangent of the story is that I was um kind of, I feel like I was on like a self-help journey at the time mm-hmm. and I found this woman Parola Bromowitz do you know who that is uh no Okay, so she's like a parenting coach in okay. Park, and I heard her speak on tour anytime and I like fell in love with her approach and her she's very into self parenting and getting to know your inner child, which is stuff that's very big now but this was like eight years ago, which was like less of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I was, it was just like spoke to my soul like this is what I want and this is what I need, you know, and um, I started going to her classes and mm-hmm. That led me to, she told me that she does private counseling. So I was like hemming and hawing. Should I go? Should I spend the money on myself? I was very like trapped there. Like with like, I just like couldn't spend, I was in like, now I'm like such a self-care advocate. I don't know if you've ever listened to any of my stuff, but I talk about self-care all the time and how like getting like the the deepest level of self-care, not like just bubble baths and manicures. And But this was like before I knew about that or heard of it or knew how powerful it was. Anyways, I decided to go. I'm like, I'm going to spend the money. I'm going to go. Carol was the one that told me, I told her all the things that were going on. She's like, have you heard of intuitive eating? I was like, no, I never heard of it. I never heard of it. I went to school for six years for my undergrad, wow. for my master's. Um, so she's, she told me about Rena Reiser, who was for sure one of the first people in the firm world to talk about it. And she's like, I read about it in Mishpacha. Um, why don't you look into it? And I was like, okay, I'll look into it. I reached out to Rena and I realized that intuitive eating is evidence-based it's written by two registered dietitians it's a really research heavy book um you read it so you know and um I was like I'm taking the training that's it I'm taking the training and that uh, that really just led me down a path of I um Rena entered me into this from intuitive eating professional WhatsApp chat I met tons of other people who were trying to do it or doing it starting my private practice and that was like when so much of my life started because I started learning about like taking care of yourself and meeting your own needs and I was learning, I was reading the book, The Surrendered Wife, which I know is now The Empowered Wife and it's controversial, but I remember thinking like at the same time, like I was so unhappy with my job. I was trying to get my husband to leave Colo. Like, I'm so unhappy, you should leave Colo instead of like, I'm so unhappy, what could I do? And it was just like, kind of like this culmination in my life of like, this isn't working for me. So I have to find another path professionally, personally and professionally. So that's how it all started basically. Wow. Okay. There's so many things that you just said that I have to ask you about. And I want to comment on, it's just incredible. You know, we have to go back to the identity piece um, of eating and diet culture and all that. But before we even get into that, maybe just for somebody who has not heard about intuitive eating and doesn't really know what that is, like in a nutshell, can you just sort of tell us what the philosophy is and, and what, if somebody goes to an intuitive eating coach, like what would they be expected? So what skills would they be learning? Sure. So intuitive eating is a book, like I said, and it's sort of like a nutrition methodology written by two registered dietitians, Evelyn Tripoli and Elise Resch. They were both working in the field of private practice for many years, putting people on like sensible diets, sensible meal plans, whatever you want to call it. And they found that their clients would lose the weight and meet, meet their goal weight, but inevitably return, whether it was a month later or a year later or five years later, mm-hmm. having gained back the weight plus more. And now with a sense of guilt, shame, body hatred, frustration, really like way worse off than they started. And they felt like they were doing something wrong. Something was wrong with this system. And that's when they looked to the research and that's how intuitive eating was born. So they, they designed, they came up with 10 principles that are designed to have, to help you have a healthy relationship with food. 
Um, their first book was written in the 1990s. Now it's in the, the fourth edition. Um, two summers ago, it came out with their fourth edition. So it's been updated. Um, and, they've, and they have over 125 studies to validate the intuitive eating model. Um, so basically, like I, I'll just tell you in a really quick nutshell how I teach and help people implement the principles, mm-hmm. um, like rejecting diet mentality. So understanding like how much of your life has been um, allocated to dieting and being skinny. And even if it's being healthy or whatever it is, just like takes up so much of your time and headspace and money, um, honoring your hunger, respecting your fullness. So that's a big part of it. Dieting turns off those cues because it tells you what to eat, when to eat and how much to eat, understanding mm-hmm. your satisfaction of food, what food you actually like and satisfy you and feel good in your body. Dieting turns off those cues as well. Cause it tells you, you should like this, or you will like this, or just keep eating it. And you'll eventually like it, even if you're vomiting from it. Right. <laughs> which which I heard from many clients, like if I have one more egg. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, then there's um, the, I call them like the more emotional um, principles, which is challenging the food police and not using food to cope with your emotions. So getting in touch with what your brain is constantly telling you, it's more like the CBT model, cognitive behavioral therapy, thoughts right. create your feelings, feelings create your behaviors, right? So getting in touch with what your brain is constantly telling you about food and your body, um, developing other coping mechanisms besides for food, because actually dieting com- like compounds using food to cope because it makes it so much more pleasurable when you are restricting. So all these, like basically dieting primes you to gain weight and be obsessed with food. Right, um, that's for sure true. And the research for sure shows that. I read a study once that even thinking about going on a diet makes people overeat. Right, Because right. they immediately have that cue of deprivation that's gonna kick in. Okay, I'm not right. gonna be able to eat soon. So even contemplating going on a diet makes people eat. Right. It's called, it's like last supper eating. Like I'm never going to eat ice cream again. So I'll eat the whole tub now, even if you're not hungry, even if you don't like it, it's, right. so it's, it's not, it's not motivated by anything um, intuitive or internal. It's motivated by external food cues. Right. Is there an educational piece? Like I, I if I recall correctly, cause it's been a while since I read the book, they talk about gentle nutrition. So you said yeah. like some people like, will force themselves to eat foods that they don't like. Right. Um, because they have been told that it's good for them. But it is true that when we make changes, our palate changes. And when we eat healthier foods, we start to realize, oh, wait a second, diet soda actually tastes like chemicals. Like mm-hmm. it's really disgusting. And I've been drinking three cans a day. And now I've changed my palate because I no longer drink Diet Coke. And, right. Right. You know? So, yeah. So I like to teach these principles before I teach um, joyful movement and gentle nutrition, because I feel like we clear away some of the um, emotional baggage around food. And then we can talk about gentle nutrition and joyful movement. And I say, now we get to pick it from a place of self-care and not Mm self-punishment. So for sure, there, for sure, those are two really important principles and respecting your body. So understanding, like focusing on how you can practice respecting your body, as opposed to just how it looks, right? Like, um, recognizing how much your body does for you and ways to take care of it, like feeding it foods that feel good in your body or that are good for you. I feel right. like without, without those other principles, it's really hard to do that without it feeling like restriction. Right. Right. That totally makes sense. Well, what, I mean, I, you know, as you're talking, obviously, like you said, um, you are part of an intuitive eating group, like for specifically for, from therapists or from intuitive eating specialists. Professionals. Yeah. Prof- yeah. Like if, not necessarily therapists, OTs, pe- uh, uh, physical, uh, what's it called? Personal trainers. Like, right. Like, yeah people in the space, but I guess what I'm wondering is, and you know, this is a podcast for Jewish women. What are some of the specific challenges that you think that Jewish women have with food that we are like, are unique to us that we need to be able to address and how does, how would intuitive eating address those? That's a good question. So first of all, I mostly work with Jewish women. I have like a very small percentage of people that are not Jewish or not from. So, Mm -hmm. um, I could speak to the Jewish community and our struggles, but I will also say that I don't know if it's worse in the Jewish community. I know that I was I was at a shear once um, and the Rebbe was talking about somebody who either converted to Judaism or she wasn't from and she became from and she was like a dancer. And she was so, um, she felt so liberated becoming from because she felt like there was so much less of an emphasis on the way that we look. <laughs> Than really? it is in the non-Jewish world, especially like in the dancer world, or maybe she was like an athlete, I don't remember. And I was like, no yeah. way, you can't imagine things I hear in my office. She's like, I'm telling you, it's a hundred times worse in the non-Jewish world. So I don't, I don't really know, but I will say. Well, we do... I, I don't know that it's worse, but I think it's different. I think we have our different. specific challenges. Yeah. Right. 
So I think that um, diet culture has definitely infiltrated into our community in terms of in terms of we think that being skinny and being healthy is a virtue. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, I don't disregard health at all. I think health is so important. And I am a dietitian. And I think nutrition and movement are really big parts of health, but they're not the only parts of health. And um, I like to think of health as like sort of like a circle of like, there's emotional health, there's spiritual health, there's mental health, there's physical health, there's financial health, relationships health, right? And um, Mm -hmm. there's actually an eating disorder called orthorexia, which is like an unhealthy obsession with only eating healthy food, right? So we can't call that healthy, right? Even though they're eating quote unquote healthy food. So remember that we only have a certain amount of uh, physical and emotional energy in a day, which, you know, because like you're, I'm sure you talk about this with your clients also. But if you're an eating disorder is, um, uh, we would say, we would describe an eating disorder as I'm, I'm quoting Jessica Setnick, who's one of my supervisors and she gives an mm-hmm. eating disorder boot camp. So, um, so basically disordered eating is thinking about food and your body 40 to 80% of the day. And an eating disorder is 80 to 110% of the day. How do you think about food 110% of the day? You're even dreaming about food because that's how deprived you are or how much obsessed you are. Like it's your only coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. So as Jewish women, right? So like, I'll just use myself as an example. I'm a Jewish woman. I am a wife. I am a mother of four kids. I have a business. I have, I'm a daughter. I'm a daughter-in-law. I'm a sister, right? So if 40 to eight, even if it's, let's just say, just say disordered eating 40 to 80% of my day, I'm thinking about how skinny I should be, how this food isn't healthy for me, how I should be exercising more, how I hate the way I look, how, how good is my quality of life going to be? And I just feel like that in and of itself is so out of alignment with our Jewish values that it's just become so warped the, that we're so obsessed with dieting. We are, I mean, that's what I see in my own circles and my family and my friends that people are constantly always talking about. Constantly, constantly talking about dieting and obsessed. I mean, I, um, you know, you mentioned the difference between let's say what goes on in the Jewish world and what goes on outside. You know, I, I was talking to a relative who's not from, who was telling me that um, like all this fast food, you know, like you go on a road trip, drive to Scranton, whatever it is. And you walk into a rest stop and there's all this like supposedly hot food that you think is so good. There's like a pizza hut and then there's a McDonald's and there's all the you take out your soggy tuna sandwich, you know, that you brought, brought along for the road. And this relative of mine who wasn't firm said, you're really not missing anything. It's really not good. And so we have this like sort of, first of all, I think as from people, we do have this feeling of deprivation that mm-hmm. we're always missing out on something with regards to food. So I think that comes up, Interesting. Um, but it, yeah. No, that's really interesting. I I, I wasn't thinking that because I feel like we're so not deprived. Maybe because I live in New York, we have so much. My husband's always like, I hate this foodie, this foodie culture. Like we're Jews. We're not supposed to be obsessed with food and and pleasure. And I'm like, I am a foodie. So I'm like, okay. But I mean, I I have my my own take on that, that Hashem wants us to feel pleasure. And of course we could take it to the, to an unhealthy degree, 100%. But I just, me, because I live in New York and I grew up in Scranton and I have gourmet gla on my block and I could get sushi any time of the day. I don't feel deprived, but I, I, maybe because you live in Cleveland, like maybe that yeah there's yeah for some reason I mean Cleveland's a little bigger than Scranton and I know there was never any kosher restaurant or anything like that in Scranton right but Cleveland also for the size of the community that it is it does not have a whole lot of restaurants and I remember when we moved here it was seven years ago and we were my husband has yeshiva and we came it was our first Shabbos that we were checking it out and somebody asked me like after our show we were you know obviously just visiting they said how did you like the community what was the kind of reception did you get and I said, you know, people were so excited to meet us and they were so excited that we're here to start the yeshiva, but I kind of got the feeling that they'd be a little bit more excited if we said we were coming to start a fancy restaurant because <laughs> it just doesn't exist in Cleveland. But I was talking to somebody and said, you know what? It's not really such a bad thing that we don't have that. Like, right. we should be cooking at home. Like, right. that's really, like a restaurant should be a treat, but it is, the culture has changed. The food culture in the firm community has changed so much. I mean, right. just even the, like the magazines that we read and all of the like food and the things. And somebody was just telling me that they know like the supermarkets now have like beef jerky bars where you can like get all these like things exactly. that like, we couldn't have imagined, right. you know, like even yeah. 10 years ago. Right. Right. So in terms of, I guess it's that um, community dependent because my, my father and brother live in Rochester, New York. So 
Um, so when we go to visit, so they used to have a really good restaurant, which was, by the way, Sabra's. Sabra, I think it was called Sabra. It was so good. I always told my brother, this is better than New York food. It's like fresh really? and delicious. And has, you could tell tons of herbs and fresh lemon, you know, it's like an Israeli mm-hmm. place. Um, but yeah, because my, the people who I know who really live out of town, like they do feel deprived. And when they come to New York, it's like they come to New York to eat, <laughs> which, right. is, which makes sense because they never have the opportunity for someone else to cook them like a restaurant style meal I totally get that um but I don't feel like that here but I understand people who might feel that that there's already a natural deprivation for food because we keep kosher so I, I hear that yeah well what about Shabbos and Yantif though like I think for a lot of people right. they feel like okay like I eat normally during the week but then Shabbos comes and it's like eight pieces of challah right and I roll yeah. away from the table and it's gross okay so I feel like maybe I have a little bit of an extreme um I like ideas about this, but I'll tell you what I think. First of all, this is like a constant thing that I do with clients when it comes to like, like a client will tell me a typical story is like, I am quote unquote good all week or whatever. And, um, and then Friday night comes and I eat a whole challah. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Right. So I said before, the way that I work through the principles is like first the physical hunger, fullness, satisfaction, then the emotional stuff, because I feel like unless we really understand that for most people, most people feel hungry every two to three hours, give or take during their week hours that they're awake. Right. So first I have to look at your eating and see, are you eating enough? If you're skipping lunch, then it's very likely that you're going to binge at dinner. It's very likely that you're going to make up your calories later. Bodies are really smart and they need a certain amount of calories and they are going to get you to eat it at some point. If you're neglecting yourself all day, it's going to catch up to you later. That's just the way it works. And that's a beautiful thing because it means your body's working and it needs calories and it's going to try to get it however it can, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say for Shabbos, um, if you're coming to the, if you skip lunch on Friday because you were too busy taking care of everyone else and your self-care has went out the window on Fridays, then of course you're going to come to the meal extra hungry. Chala tastes really good. And um, when we're really, really hungry, our bodies tend to crave simple carbs because simple carbs are our easiest form of energy. It will go straight into our bloodstream. Like when we, when we're counseling diabetics, we tell them don't eat plain carbs, eat carbs with protein, fat, and fiber so that it will delay the sugar getting into your bloodstream. Right. So why, why is that? Because sugar, um, sugar will break down into glucose and get right into your bloodstream. So if you're, if think about it like that, you're not, when you're really, really hungry, like starving ravenous, you're not craving salmon and salmon broccoli. You're craving like chips and cookies, you know? So again, like to take the take the um, emotional baggage out of it and just see it as more of a survival mechanism. And is this working for you? It sounds like it's, you don't like to eat a whole challah on a Friday night. How can we work around that? Let's make sure you're eating on a Friday. I have lots of different ideas, setting alarms, making yourself a meal on Thursday nights, putting it on your to-do list to eat lunch. It, it has to be done. That's that's from a physical perspective, right? Um, emotionally, it could be that you are using food to cope, right? It could be that on Shabbos is your only space to eat. Um, because you're so rushed during the rest of the week. That's another thing that we're going to work on. The satisfaction of food is making sure you have enough time to eat. So, um, and yes, we do serve, in my opinion, too much food. We do. When we we started to do in our house, like on Friday nights, like nobody really is hungry for the main. So if I have like really good challah and dips and salad, and then we have all, I put a whole chicken in my chicken soup and everyone gets chicken from the chicken soup. I really don't have to make more food. Now, uh, my, uh, my oldest is 10, so she's already giving me pushback, but like really nobody's hungry after that. So right. I do think that there, it's, it's hard to fight against the culture if everybody around you is cooking a lot and it has a lot of food, but I feel like you have to do what works for you. If that makes you feel out of control with food or like you feel sick after that type of meal, it sounds like that's not serving you. And like, how could we change that? And that's a process, you know? Right. The way I like to think about it is that you want to eat like for Onik Shabbos, not that Shabbos is an excuse to eat, which I think sometimes that happens like, oh, Shabbos. So it's like just an excuse to eat whatever I want, as opposed to I'm eating this delicious food, like because it's a way of honoring Shabbos. And so flipping that relationship around with food as like, uh, I don't know, like a vehicle to do something rather than an end in and of itself. I don't know what you think about that. Well, I feel like, yeah. I feel like it's all about like really a lot of self-honesty, right? Like if you're like, it's Shabbos and eating this food is going to enhance my Shabbos and I feel really good about it when I eat it, then that sounds like 
um, it really is making you enjoy your Shabbos more. If you're binging on cookies and you feel sick and then you're going to vomit or you're potentially that's happening because you are um, avoiding something else in your life, right? I always say that it's easier to feel guilty about eating 10 cookies than screaming at your husband. So we do right. like a trans transference of um, pain and it's easier to deal with that pain in a way. Right. Well, that's so, okay. We could spend a lot of time on that one, but <laughs> our time is somewhat limited. And I want to ask you just about, um, you know, so, some of the pushback against intuitive eating. One of the things that scares people is letting go of being on a diet. Because right. like you said, me also, like at a certain point in high school, you start to realize that you're gaining a little weight. I'm not so, like, I also grew up very skinny. Um, and then at a certain point, like wasn't able to just eat whatever I want and still be that same skinny. Um, and then, so then you start dieting and you know, it was a Carbondale diet. That was the diet that like where all the food was supposed to cancel. It's, I think that's what it was called. We did all these different things. And most of my friends I'm 49 are still doing all these different things. You know, like you said, right. there's keto, there's paleo, there's right. people are vegans or they're, you know, depriving, cutting something out. I remember back mm -hmm. in the day it was Atkins. Um, like you said, South beach, the sugar diet, I can mention all of them that I've been on. Um, yeah. but there's a fear of like, oh, getting rid of that because that is a structure and it's a protective, mm -hmm. um, mechanism. And there's this hope that if I follow a certain guideline or if I follow a specific set of rules, I'll get a result that I really, really want. And so I would imagine that a lot of people who are, when they're introduced intuitive eating, are just scared that if they just don't have that structure, they're going to eat entire contents mm -hmm. of their pantry. Right, right. No, it's a, it's a really good question. So first of all, I guess just paying attention to the fact that you said you're 49, right? And you started dieting when you're in high school. So how many years is that? 30, 30 years? 35 years. So like, I know this sounds funny, but like the definition of insanity is like trying the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So Right, but people years. think like every, it's the next diet. That one didn't work, right. this one's right. gonna work. So 35 years of dieting, trying all the different diets, this one didn't work. And now let, let me subject myself to another one. Mm -hmm. And it right. still hasn't worked. And that one didn't work. And that one didn't work. And that one didn't work. And I said, like I said before, dieting primes you to gain weight. Every time you, the first diet or the first few diets, your body, the weight usually comes up much faster, right? Your body like, gets rid of the, it, it's usually like first water weight, but- after a few diets, your body gets really smart and is like, oh, here we go again. We're being in, we're in depri deprivation mode, hold on to those calories. Mm -hmm. Doesn't know that you're voluntarily, bodies can't say like you're voluntarily, voluntarily restricting or not in a desert starving, right? So, every, and then every time, and then we start, we go off the diet and then we're in binge mode or we're in um, diet starts tomorrow. I better eat this now, even if the diet starts every two weeks, right? Um, so there's more eating. Then, then, like I said before, there's more, you even get a more reward um, system from eating. Like your brain gets more reward from eating when you're going on and off a diet and your yo-yo weight cycling, which is even worse for your health than being quote unquote overweight. So the, the act of dieting raises your set point weight. Every time you diet, you slow down your metabolism. Then you go off the diet and you're binging Then you raise your weight. Then you do it again. So I understand why people are so afraid because they feel like, wait a second, I've been dieting for 30 years. This is all I know what's going to be. And sometimes there is um, like a binging um, uh, time period. Like there's a binging, um, <laughs> there's binging that happens before you feel safe around food. But when you, when you really take away the restriction, which is a process of going through the intuitive eating principles, you you don't eat all the contents of your pantry. You feel safer around food. Food doesn't take up so much of your headspace. And like you kind of like you said before, like all you said, most of your friends are still dieting, right? So like, and and like I was saying before, like it takes dieting takes up so much headspace. Like you have to make sure you have certain foods in the house always, which is I'm not saying a good or bad thing. It's good to meal plan and do that as a form of self-care to take care of yourself. But um if it's taking up more than 40% of your headspace, I think you're just doing like a disservice to yourself by allocating so much of your important, precious headspace to. Right. Food. I think it's also true. And it's hard to, to move away from this mindset because of diet culture, because most of us grew up hearing whatever messages we do assign a moral value to certain foods. And of course, you know, you know cake is bad. Vegetables are good. And mm -hmm. if you are able to eat that way, that means you're good or you're bad. 
right? right. And people will right. say that when they get up from the, the meal, they'll say, I was so good or I was so bad. Like they will usually right. assign a judgment to themselves or give themselves some sort of score or rating on how right. they did with that meal. Right, exactly. So it's, it's so what I'm with when I do in, introduce intuitive eating. So first of all, people come to me usually when they hit diet rock bottom. What do they call it in the intuitive reading book? Like I literally can't go on another diet. If anyone, I also have a podcast. It's called Get Into It with Gila. And I, I just recently interviewed Blamey Heller, who's, I don't know if you know her, but she's also like a parenting coach on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was telling me her story about how she, how she started doing intuitive eating. And she said, I was, I couldn't do it. She's like, I woke up and I was like, I can't do another diet. It's been 20 years and I'm done or something like that. And I was like, yeah, it's called hitting diet rock bottom. So, um, that's people, I feel like people come to me when they're at that, when they're just so desperate, they're like, Hey, nothing else worked. So please just tell me what intuitive eating is, even though like, I'm so afraid. I think people, um, really like dieting in a way because it does give them structure because it's like, if I don't even know what I'm going to eat at all, I feel totally lost. So then I say like, we could do a meal plan. And like I said before, I will help people do meal plans, um, when it comes from a place of self-care and not from self-judgment, but first we have to really understand like your hunger and fullness cues and what foods you really like. And so, so many times when people go through this process are like, oh my God, I was binging on French fries and I don't even like French fries. Or I was binging on a food because it reminds me of my mother and like, maybe I can connect to my mother in a different way. Um, There's just like so many, there's so many emotional things attached to our eating experience that like, if unless we like become like super aware of it, we just continue to do it. So I I understand why people are. I always tell people like if Hashem wanted to create a system where we'd get all our nutrients in the air, Hashem could have created our bodies, but Hashem not only wants us to eat, but he wants us to eat all day and to be busy with our food all day. Right. Right. I say that too. I say Hashem made eating and he made breathing, right? Breathing isn't really pleasurable. Food is pleasurable. And I'll quote, I'll quote my sister-in-law here who, um, is expecting, and she told me I could share the story. She said that, um, she always wished that she was one of those people that just didn't like food. Cause then she would not eat. And then she would, then she would be skinny that, you know, those people who are like, oh, yes. I forgot to eat. Yeah, I don't understand. Yes, I don't I understand it. I have like a fever. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yes. what are we eating? <laughs> <Yeah>. the- <laughs> I'm the same way. So yeah. she said that she was really nauseous in the beginning of this pregnancy and she was really not able to eat and nothing seemed good to her. And she said it would make her feel depressed. It made her feel so sad. And she realized how lucky she is that she likes eating. Think about it. You're like you said, we're busy with it all day. Breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack, Shabbos, Yantif, like there, Hashem made it pleasurable for a reason. Of course, we could take it to an extreme where we, where we're like using food in an unhealthy way. I, I'm not saying no. I'm just saying that it's supposed to be pleasurable. We're supposed to enjoy it. It's supposed to feel good in our body. And um, that's part of caring for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Actually, I'll share something with you that the Mishnah Brewer says, which is that you know, we tend to think that there's physical and there's spiritual. I mean, there is, we don't tend to think that Hashem created like those two dimensions. We have our physical bodies and we have our spiritual, our neshama that lives on forever. And somehow food is the bridge between the two. So it's not that food is part of the physical world. Food is like somehow the bridge to which we access the spiritual neshama. I guess food keeps our neshama in our gut, right? I guess. Yeah. But it's not just like, a, like a means to an end. Like I, I have to eat because I'm alive. And if I don't eat, it's just like gas in the tank. It mm. in and of itself is somehow a way that we could, if we would access it appropriately, or if we would have a healthy relationship with food that we actually mm. would be able to access our shama. I mean, I saw that in the mission room and I was blown away and I, I have to like do more research about it. Cause it is so, such a fascinating idea for me again, because of like all this like stuff that we, are surrounded with, with food. That's so, you know, we, you know, we really need to take control and responsibility of our relationship with food mm-hmm. and, and relate to it in a healthy way. But I don't know, very interesting. But what, what do you say? Like when somebody comes to you and their goal is to lose weight, like they're heavy, they need to lose 40 mm-hmm. pounds, 50 pounds, mm-hmm. whatever the doctor mm-hmm. said, you have to lose weight, you're unhealthy. So how would it, you know, how would intuitive eating, because the goal is not health, weight loss, right? The goal is right healthy or to have a good relationship with food. So is this a a plan for that? Right. So weight loss isn't part of intuitive eating at all. It's a completely weight neutral um, modality. And the reason is also because of all the weight research, which we were talking about a little bit before health at every size. um, And the research from intuitive eating is that basically like we have a genetic blueprint that will um, 
will determine our set point weight range. Dieting actually makes it higher, like I was saying before, but bodies come in all shapes and sizes, just like people have different shoe sizes and different colored hair and different eye colors. People have different body sizes. Um, and you can, you can, health at every size means that you could pursue health at any size. It doesn't mean that you are quote unquote healthy at any size, but you could be unhealthy and skinny, right? So we've, we have an obsession in our society that weight is the, is the number one like problem about anything. And people have said this, like all the time they break their arm, the doctor won't see them unless they lose weight. It has nothing to do with weight or people are, they have cancer and nobody will look at them until they lose weight. And then it becomes stage four cancer. Like it's become like the number one, like the only ailment obesity it's, and it's not true. And really what the, one of the biggest like mantras of intuitive eating is that weight's not a behavior. And this, we are working on behaviors where they're, we're directly working on behaviors. We are working on um, not using food to cope. We are working on eating more fruits and vegetables. We are working on joyful movement. And those are things that can affect your health very positively. But, and that might mean that you don't lose weight and you still, your lab values are better and that you feel better and they're able to move better. So I think that we've, we got into the habit of blaming everything on weight and it's just not true. Right. It's not true, but like, this is where, like, I sort of, and I don't know if it's, it's intuitive eating, like, as a movement, or if it's the people who, like, kind of attach themselves to intuitive eating, maybe with, you know, like, a different sort of, like, ultimate agenda in mind. This healthy at every size thing is where I get stuck a little bit, because mm -hmm. there's no such thing as healthy at every size. Like, meaning obesity is a huge problem. It's the number one health um, risk in America and it's responsible for heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's, um, obviously diabetes, all these kinds of things. And so I think that sometimes what happens is, is that there's this like sort of fat acceptance movement and this, like, you know, we have to accept our bodies that we take it to the opposite extreme where, and then everything, I guess, everything could be taken to an unhealthy extreme. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I see the sort of unhealthy extreme of like, no judgment about food. Um, you know, of course people could be thin and unhealthy. Like, mm -hmm. of course that's true. I had a client once whose mother was a heroin addict. So of course heroin makes you skinny. Right. And right. she said to me, as soon as my mother starts losing weight, I know she's using it again. Right. Yeah. So obviously she's thin, but very, or she was getting thin, but very unhealthy. So people could be thin and unhealthy and people could technically be at a heavier body weight and be more, you know, technically be more healthy, meaning better blood pressure, better cholesterol, better numbers, whatever, however you determine health. Quality of life, right. maybe happier, better right. relationships, whatever it is. And of course, right. cortisol, you know, has a lot of physical effects on our body that's very negative. So stress hormones, all that kind of thing. But at the same time, I feel like there is like sort of like a spot where you have to say, like, being heavy is not good for us. It is not healthy. Like it needs to be addressed as a health concern. And people need to take responsibility for that aspect of their health. Like, so where does that come in? So I guess I could answer that in a few different ways. So first of all, um, I want to make sure that I, that I cover all my ground. So first of all, <laughs> first of all, like, could I just use myself as an example? Um, so like, I think I don't re really know my weight because I don't want to be like triggered by my weight. And I, I'm not going to talk about that now. I can talk about it later because I want to just say this. Um, so I had a baby eight months ago and during the pregnancy, I tried not to look at my weight. And, and the, anyways, I did look at my weight and I, I actually, I was a fan with it because I had, you know, they send you like the, the follow-ups, but I was categorized as obese during that pregnancy. Okay. And, um, like I said before, like I was probably like skinny in high school for the first few years of marriage. And then like people's bodies change, right? Like, um, whether it's medication that you're on or it's having babies or it's trauma, things affect your weight that are outside of your control. I don't really think I changed my eating. I exercise every single day. I eat lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains. I know a lot about nutrition. Um, and I had, I had, because I was obese, I had to be checked more often. My blood pressure was always perfect. My baby was healthy and at a normal size. I consider myself healthy. I also go to therapy and I'm really into my mental health and my relationships health and my financial health, right? But um, I would be considered in a very unhealthy category if my BMI would categorize me as obese, right? Now, BMI is your weight and your height, which are two biomarkers. They're not the only biomarkers of health. I'm not saying that that weight is not a biomarker of health. I'm just saying it's become the only biomarker of health, which is just not true. 
How could you categorize somebody based just on their BMI? You don't know anything. And people are categorized based on their BMI. You walk into a doctor's office and they see that you're obese and they say, you really should be eating more fruits and vegetables and exercising. And the patient will say, I am. And they'll say, no, you're not. I can see it from your BMI. Mm-hmm. So people are, people are fat shamed and they are, there is um, a fat phobia in our society. You can't deny that. Right. No, and then, sure. then, then people don't go to the doctors Then people don't exercise. They don't want to go to the gyms because there's a fat, there's a fat phobia right, and right, fat shame, right. right? So there's that whole, that of course increases your risk of disease because you're never going to the doctor and you're not going to go exercise in public because you're embarrassed and cord- the, the stigma does affect your cortisol and your blood. Those are all things that are negative for your health. Right. Mm-hmm. And also there is also research, just so you know, correlation doesn't equal causation. Like we know that. So we we're all saying that, like, if you're fat or you're in a larger body or you're overweight, it causes all those things. But we don't necessarily know that just like we know that African-Americans are at a higher risk of being hypertensive. We're not telling African-Americans not to be African-American. Mm-hmm. You got what I'm saying? Is it the same thing, though? No, I'm not saying there is a cat. There is. um like, let's think about it in percentage. There is a percentage that we can be in control over. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just say how we eat and how we exercise and how we take, how we manage our stress and how much we sleep. But first of all, definitely not as much as diet culture says percentage. Right. A lot of it is genetic. And what's the alternative? Because we don't have, there is no known way to healthy health in a healthy way, lose weight. Because I said before, most people who diet gain more weight. Right. And what about weight loss surgery? That's also not super like healthy. Right. No, so, that's, that's a horrible, I mean, I guess I know lots of people have done it, but it usually has all sorts of consequences that are unforeseen. Exactly. So I'm just saying like, I'm not saying like, let's negate our health and like throw everything out and not eat right. foods that are good for us. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, let's get really honest with ourselves of how much a, a percentage is in our control and let's focus on healthy behaviors and not just on the weight. Right. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I do, like I said, with intuitive eating, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And then I get to that one point where I'm like, I'm not sure. Right. I understand. Yeah. I understand. People and have it, a really hard time with that. It, it, yeah. And maybe it's part of that same thing of like not being able to let go of like a structured formula that is very comforting, where if I do X, I'll get Y results. And of course, like you said, people are very complicated. So like, let's say just the release of stress is going to slow your metabolism down. Right. Mm -hmm. So people can like be eating everything, but then not, or not getting sleep, let's say that's obviously Mm going to interfere with your hormones and make it difficult to lose weight. I guess Mm -hmm. the reality is, is that places where people don't eat, they don't have, like we have obesity in Western culture Mm -hmm. and a lot of it, not even because of how much we eat, but what we eat, like meaning Mm -hmm the quality of our foods is so deteriorated, the amount of processed foods that we eat, the chemicals that we eat, things that our bodies don't really recognize as even food to begin with. Can I, but could I just argue with that for a second? Sorry, just because I have to. Yes. Um, I feel, okay. I feel like when I, when I was at, um, getting my master's in nutrition, we had to um, all present foods that were like um, hot in the media. So let's just say like um, GMOs, genetically modified organisms, right. or acai is it's like a superfood, or quinoa, or, or corn, high fructose corn syrup, right? So I remember learning about GMOs that um, that we they haven't been around long enough for us to say that they're dangerous for us, but we they have been along they have been around long enough to say that they have sustained our food system for many, many years. How do, how, why is there no food insecurity? I mean, not no food insecurity, but let's compare America to a third world country that does not have the mass produced foods that we have because of the corn and because of the wheat. Right. So, um, it's, it's, I don't want to say like pick your poison, but almost in a way I do, because we live in a world that demonizes food and so many food and almost all food. If you're on this diet, the bananas are bad. And if you're on this diet, then salmon's bad. And if you're on this diet, then, um, grains are bad. Right. So you could demonize any food and we live in a society that demonizes food. So, but we also know that like people are always talking about paleo and things that were so healthy for us. People also died when they were 40 then. (laughs) Like, I'm just, I'm just saying like, we really are at, maybe there's an obesity epidemic in a way because there is a lot of mass produced foods that our bodies don't recognize. And that does lead to certain complications, but it also makes so many of us survive. Right. No, it's totally true what you're saying. Um, but then I go back to, even in the times of the Rambam, he said that food, more people die from too much food than too little. 
right? Right. So right. I guess it's, maybe it's always been a problem that people have to think about what they eat and, you know, take into account like quality and as far or quantity, I should say, rather as far as quality goes, you know, it is a good point, but I, you know, I can't believe that eating red dye number seven is good for you. I also can't, I also want to just argue that if you're so afraid of red dye number seven and it's affecting your mental health and you're not able to go out with friends and you won't go to a simcha and you're yelling at your kids who are binging on candy anyways, that's also not good for you. That's, that is totally true. That's a totally valid point. And I guess on that note, okay, so I know you have to go and I have so many more questions. We we could do a part two if you want. Yes. We're going to have to do part two actually, because I have so many, I want to get into, this is so fascinating to me. I want to ask you about how we teach our kids to, you know, not grow up with the same, like sort of mental insanity about food that we have, like, what are some, you know, tips for that? Um, a lot of other questions. So I would like to do part two. That would be great. But let me just leave my audience. Well, first of all, tell everybody where they can find you. Okay, sure. So I have a website, which is just my name, www.gilaglassberg.com. So you could find a lot of blog. I have tons of blog posts there where I talk about all the things we were just talking about. I have a podcast called Get Into It with Gila. I'm on Instagram at gila.glassberg.intuitiverd. And you can email me at gilaglassberg18 at gmail.com. And please reach out. I would love to connect. Okay, so that's great. Okay, so the last question that I ask everyone, if there's one message you could give Jewish women from your life experience, what would it be? Okay, so I, I thought about this question a lot, and I feel like I kind of answered it throughout the uh, throughout the interview. But I just really this is so this is so important to me. Like I'll say again, uh, Hashem gave us so many like amazing opportunities in our lives to be like I said before, Jewish women, mothers, wives. Um, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter-in-law. All these things, and food is important. Like we said before, like it is a big part of your day, and it's how we show love and give love and yantiv and all those things. But it's not that important that it should interfere with any of those other really important roles that we that we have and if you are struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating you're always quote unquote sick enough to get help and i i really want to encourage you to get the help that you need because you don't have to stay stuck in diet culture you don't have to stay stuck in disordered eating it doesn't have to dictate your life and there are resources and people and things that could really help you so that's just something that is so important for me to say over and over and over again, know your values, know what's important to you, know how much um, how much attention and time you're giving to something. And if it's not aligned in line with your value system, like you can change that. Wow, that was amazing. Gila, thank you so much. This was so much fun. I love that. Thank you for coming. Definitely. Sure. Thank you for having me. It was great. All right. So there you have it. Um, check the show notes below so you can get Gila's information if you want to be in touch with her. Of course, be in touch with me at a deeper conversation 120 at gmail.com with comments, questions, feedback. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, um, you can also follow me on Instagram at a deeper conversation. You can um, go to Maverick Podcasting and click the link to my page to support the podcast or donate there um, and go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, leave a review, hopefully a good one, and I'll meet you back here in the next podcast.